Well, here we gather again for an evening under Lamplight podcast with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson, and another one of Stevenson's fables. <laughs> I'm afraid this one is a really troublesome fable, more like a weird short, short story with ghosts, encounters with the dead, and an almost surreal atmosphere throughout. Not to mention the very odd language, which almost sounds foreign, though we know it's English of sorts, and we are never, or, or almost never, in doubt about what it means. The story is The Poor Thing. Like many good fairy tales, it tells of the adventures of a hero, an underdog, who must find a wife. Well, I've never seen a fairy tale that handles this theme in quite the way this story does. But enough of introduction, let's get to the story itself, starting, as usual now, with Stevenson's own composition, Aberlady Lynx, arranged by Wendy Weatherby and played by Norman Chalmers and Heather Young. thing. There was a man in the islands who fished for his bare bellyful, and took his life in his hands to go forth upon the sea between four planks. But though he had much ado, he was merry of heart, and the gulls heard him laugh when the spray met him, and though he had little lore, he was sound of spirit, and when the fish came to his hook in the mid-waters, he blessed God without weighing. He was bitter poor in goods, and bitter ugly of countenance, and he had no wife. It fell in the time of the fishing that the man awoke in his house about the midst of the afternoon. The fire burnt in the midst, and the smoke went up, and the sun came down by the chimney, and the man was aware of the likeness of one that warmed his hands at the red peats. I greet you, said the man, in the name of God. I greet you, said he that warmed his hands, but not in the name of God, for I am none of his, nor in the name of hell, for I am not of hell, for I am but a bloodless thing, less than wind and lighter than a sound, and the wind goes through me like a net, and I am broken by a sound and shaken by the cold. Be plain with me, said the man, and tell me your name and of your nature. My name, quoth the other, is not yet named, and my nature is not yet sure, for I am part of a man, and I was a part of your fathers, and went out to fish and fight with them in the ancient days. But now is my turn not yet come, and I wait until you have a wife, and then shall I be in your son, and a brave part of him, rejoicing manfully to launch the boat into the surf, skilful to direct the helm, and a man of might, where the ring closes and the blows are going. <laughs> this is a marvellous thing to hear, said the man, and if you are indeed to be my son, I, I fear it will go ill with you, for I am bitter poor in goods, and bitter ugly in face, and I shall never get me a wife if I live to the age of eagles. All this have I come to remedy, my father, said the poor thing, for we must go this night to the little isle of sheep, 
where our fathers lie in the dead cairn, and to-morrow to the Earl's Hall, and there shall you find a wife by my providing. So the man rose and put forth his boat at the time of the sun-setting, and the poor thing sat in the prow, and the spray blew through his bones like snow, and the wind whistled in his teeth, and the boat dipped not with the weight of him. I'm fearful to see you, my son, said the man, for methinks you are no thing of God. Oh, it's only the wind that whistles in my teeth, said the poor thing, and there's no life in me to keep it out. So they came to the little isle of sheep, where the surf burst all about it in the midst of the sea, and it was all green with bracken and all wet with dew, and the moon enlightened it. They ran the boat into a cove and set foot to land, and the man came heavily behind among the rocks in the deepness of the bracken, but the poor thing went before him like a smoke in the light of the moon. So they came to the dead cairn, and they laid their ears to the stones, and the dead complained with insides like a swarm of bees. Time was that marrow was in our bones, and strength in our sinews, and the thoughts of our head were clothed upon with acts and the words of men. But now we are broken in sunder, and the bonds of our bones are loosed, and our thoughts lie in the dust. Then said the poor thing, Charge them that they give you the virtue they withheld. And the man said, Bones of my father's greeting, for I am sprung of your loins. And now, behold, I break open the piled stones of your cairn, and I let in the moon between your ribs. Count it well done, for it was to be, and give me what I come seeking in the name of blood and in the name of God. And the spirits of the dead stirred in the cairn like ants, and they spoke. You have broken the roof of our cairn and let in the moon between our ribs, and you have the strength of the still living. But what virtue have we? What power? Or what jewel here in the dust with us that any living man should covet or receive it? For we are less than nothing. But we tell you one thing, speaking with many voices like bees, that the way is plain before all like the grooves of launching. So forth into life and fear not, for so did we all in the ancient ages. And their voices passed away like an eddy in a river. Now, said the poor thing, they have told you a lesson, but make them give you a gift. Stoop your hand among the bones without drawback, and you shall find their treasure. So the man stooped his hand, and the dead laid hold upon it, many and faint like ants, but he shook them off, and behold, what he brought up in his hand was the shoe of a horse, and it was rusty. It is a thing of no price, quoth the man, for it is rusty. We shall see that, said the poor thing, for my thought it is a good thing to do what our fathers did, and to keep what they kept without question. And in my thought, one thing is as good as another in this world, and a shoe of a horse will do. Now they got into their boat with the horseshoe, 
and when the dawn was come, they were aware of the smoke of the earl's town and the bells of the kirk that beat. So they set foot to shore, and the man went up to the market among the fishers over against the palace and the kirk, and he was bitter poor and bitter ugly, and he had never a fish to sell, but only a shoe of a horse in his creel, and it rusty. Now, said the poor thing, do so and so, and ye shall find a wife, and I a mother. It befell that the earl's daughter came forth to go into the kirk upon her prayers, and when she saw the poor man stand in the market with only the shoe of a horse, and it rusty, it came in her mind it should be a thing of price. What is that? quoth she. It is a shoe of a horse, said the man. And, and what is the use of it? quoth the earl's daughter. It is for no use, said the man. I may not believe that, said she. Why else should you carry it? I do so, said he, because it was so my father's did in the ancient ages, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. Now the earl's daughter could not find it in her mind to believe him. Come, quoth she, sell me this, for I'm sure it is a thing of price. Nay, said the man, for the thing is not for sale. What? cried the earl's daughter. Then what make you here in the town's market with the thing in your creel and not beside? I sit here, says the man, to get me a wife. There's no sense in any of these answers, thought the earl's daughter, and I could find it in my heart to weep. By came the earl upon that, and she called him and told him all, and when he had heard, he was of his daughter's mind that this should be a thing of virtue, and charged the man to set a price upon the thing, or else be hanged upon the gallows, and that was near at hand so that the man could see it. The way of life is straight like the grooves of launching, quoth the man, and if I am to be hanged, let me be hanged. Why, cried the earl, will you set your neck against the shoe of a horse, and it rusty? In my thought, said the man, one thing is as good as another in this world, and a shoe of a horse will do. This can never be, thought the earl, and he stood and looked upon the man and bit his beard. And the man looked up at him and smiled. It was so my fathers did in the ancient ages, quoth he to the earl, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. There's no sense in any of this, thought the earl, and I must be growing old. So he had his daughter on one side, and says he, Many suitors have you denied, my child, but here is a very strange matter that a man should cling so to a shoe of a horse, and it rusty, and that he should offer it like a thing on sale, and yet not sell it, and that he should sit there seeking a wife. If I come not to the bottom of this thing, I shall have no more pleasure in bread, and I can see no way, but either I should hang, or you should marry him. By my troth, but he is bitter ugly, said the earl's daughter. How if the gallows be so near at hand? It was not so, said the earl, that my fathers did in the ancient ages. I'm like the man, and can give you neither a better reason nor a worse. But do you, prithee, speak with him again? So the earl's daughter spoke to the man. If you were not so bitter ugly, quoth she, my father the earl would have us marry. Bitter ugly am I, said the man, and you as fair as may. Bitter ugly I am, and what of that? It was so my father's 
Och, in the name of God, said the Earl's daughter, let your fathers be. If I had done that, said the man, you had never been chaffering with me here in the market, nor your father the Earl watching with the end of his eye. But come, quoth the Earl's daughter, this is a very strange thing that you would have me wed for a shoe of a horse, and it rusty. In my thought, quoth the man, one thing is as good. Oh, spare me that, said the Earl's daughter, and tell me why I should marry. Listen and look, said the man. Now the wind blew through the poor thing like an infant crying, so that her heart was melted, and her eyes were unsealed, and she was aware of the thing as it were a babe unmothered, and she took it to her arms, and it melted in her arms like the air. Come, said the man, behold a vision of our children, the busy hearth and the white heads, and let that suffice, for it is all God offers. I have no delight in it, said she, but with that she sighed. The ways of life are straight like the grooves of launching, said the man, and he took her by the hand. And, and what shall we do with the horseshoe, quoth she? I will give it to your father, said the man, and he can make a kirk and a mill of it for me. It came to pass in time that the poor thing was born, but memory of these matters slept within him, and he knew not that which he had done. But he was a part of the eldest son, rejoicing manfully to launch the boat into the surf, skilful to direct the helm, and a man of might where the ring closes and the blows are going. story wasn't very easy to make out, was it? Oh yes, I'm sure we felt the eerie power of the story, and the fact that we couldn't really see the point of what was going on only adds to the mysterious atmosphere. But we're here together, and we're not going to walk away just saying that we're confused and that's that. What do we do when we read a work of literature that we can't understand? When we're faced with something we can't grasp, we grasp whatever we can, what is right here in front of us, the language, the images, and the shape of the work as the parts connect into a whole. So let's look first at the language. Here are just a few of the phrases that will strike us as disconcertingly odd. The fisherman fished for his bare belly full. We know what this means. A kind of subsistence fisherman, just keeping himself in food little more. A bare belly full, barely filling his stomach and he would go forth upon the sea between four planks. Yes, he went out in his boat, which let's hope was made of more than just four planks, but we know what this means. It was only a basic boat, nothing extra. Later, he and the poor thing go out together, at the time of the sun setting. Sun setting. One word. It sounds biblical or even older. What sort of time period is all this language pulling us into? No, the point is, this is not a realistic story. It is set in an unreal world. It's an artifice, designed to arouse our admiration, of course, and set us puzzling, 
working on it to see what it can mean for us. What about the imagery? Again, we notice how atmospheric Stevenson can be with so few words of description. Just to take one sentence out of many, here's the fisherman and the poor thing out in the four planks of his boat. Picture the scene and feel the effect on you of the picture. So the man rose and put forth his boat at the time of the sunsetting, and the poor thing sat in the prow, and the spray blew through his bones like snow, and the wind whistled in his teeth, and the boat dipped not with the weight of him. The description seems both effortless and masterful. This not-quite-human form, with the elements of the sea moving through him, leading the fishermen to the land of the dead. Okay, then the shape of the story. There are three scenes. The poor thing coming to the fisherman's house, the journey to the little isle of sheep, and the final scene in the marketplace, in front of the kirk and the earl's hall, and, let's not forget, with the gallows right over there, and the epilogue with the birth of the next generation, the poor thing being born in the eldest son, to continue the ways of the ancestors. The mythic pattern is here, the calling, the death experience, and the return. The return accomplishes two things. First, the hero marries the beautiful damsel, thus confirming that he's worthy to be matched with the best in his world. And following from this, the poor thing gets to be born, and the race of the ancestors can continue. Now, what about the characters? How, how old is the fisherman? I always imagined him an older man, but attending to the story more closely now, I realize he can't be. He doesn't seem exactly youthful, but he must be of marriageable age. But it doesn't really matter, does it? What matters, if only because we're told this several times, is that he is bitter poor in goods and bitter ugly of countenance. The kind of underdog who appears as the hero of a fairy tale. In a sense, his poverty and ugliness also place him outside society. We have, we have no sense of any companions in his life. He's a lone fisherman. But he is merry of heart and enjoys the narrow life he leads and thanks God for the little he has. Maybe it's all of this that qualifies him to be called on this adventure. Or, or maybe it's his limited life that requires him to be called out to something more, something more fulfilling. And also, this fisherman is clever. He shows in the marketplace that he knows how to play the game the poor thing has devised for him. He's patient and persistent and makes the best of the little he has, the same way, I suppose, that he conducts his fishing expeditions at sea. Who is this poor thing? He assures us that he's not of God nor of hell, just a bloodless thing. Just an idea, a whim, a possibility. The possibility seems to be something to do with inherited abilities or tendencies. He is what we today would call part of the genes the fisherman has inherited from his ancestors. And what do we know about those ancestors? What advice do they offer? So forth into life and fear not, for so did we all in the ancient ages. In other words, go out and live. That's the calling. Don't huddle in your solitary life thinking that because you're ugly there's nothing for you in life. This sounds a bit like that lad in the penitent who just sat there weeping for his sins, not venturing out and eventually having nothing to eat. 
The fisherman is living a similar kind of life. His ancestors went out and lived. He has inherited their genes. Let him do likewise. And so he does. But as in all stories like this, the hero must be given some kind of talisman, some magic object to help him in his difficulties. What do the ancestors give him? The shoe of a horse, and it rusty. A pretty insignificant gift, yet it's not the gift that matters, but what you can do with it, and you can do wonderful things if you know how to play it. Your strength, the ancestors seem to be saying, lies in continuing the connection with your heritage. Exactly what that heritage has given you isn't as important as that connection. It is a good thing to do what our fathers did, the poor thing tells them, and to keep what they kept without question. And in my thought, one thing is as good as another in this world, and a shoe of a horse will do. This phrase will become a kind of refrain in the third scene, almost like another talisman or charm for him to use in his time of need, along with the other sentence acting as a charm. It was so my fathers did in the ancient ages, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. In fact, something strange happens with this charm. It seems to get transferred over to the Earl, who in saying this line himself seems to have been won over to, or even identified with, the fisherman. There's something magic about these charms. Do you see how we're getting along? We're not rushing into any full meaning of the story, but focusing on what is actually going on in the words, watching our response to the words, and waiting for some meaning to arise from that. And so the fisherman stands, or sits, he seems to do both, in the marketplace, with his creel, his basket, containing no fish, only that shoe of a horse, and it rusty. I love that phrase. It makes no sense. One sits in the marketplace only in order to sell something, and that's what puzzles the Earl and his daughter. They are conventional people and live by the respectable social conventions. This leads them to assume that although the shoe of a horse and it rusty seems to have no value, the fact that the fisherman displays it and yet is not willing to sell it must indicate that it is of immense value. In contrast to the other two, the fisherman, the outsider, does not follow social conventions, but follows, instead, the advice the poor thing gave him, the inner promptings that come from his ancestors who told him to go out and dare to live. The earl and his daughter, as I said, assume the shoe of a horse and it rusty is of immense value. It is, we might say, the bait. Our hero is a fisherman, after all, and we are watching him as he plays these two on his line. Fisherman, salesman, what's the difference? And once he lures the Earl's daughter closer, something interesting happens. He tries to apply his charms, his magic sentences. It was so, my father's. One thing is as good, but she stops him. He has no need for charms now. All he has to say to her is, listen and look. And then comes that marvelous moment where the poor thing plays his part in this little marketplace drama. Now the wind blew through the poor thing like an infant crying, so that her heart was melted, and her eyes were unsealed, and she was aware of the thing as it were a babe unmothered, and she took it to her arms, and it melted in her arms like the air. Something has awoken inside her, something deeper than her social assumptions and her distaste for his ugliness and poverty. Her ancestral urges are at work. 
She says she has no delight in this marriage and sighs. The she, like the fisherman, has held back from engagement, refusing previous suitors. Let her now take what is here and engage with this fisherman and follow the grooves of launching into a new generation. And so the two come together, and the poor thing can become incarnated again in human form, carrying on the life of his ancestors. What kind of life? A life full of joyful action and engagement, both at sea and on land, rejoicing manfully to launch the boat into the surf, skilful to direct the helm, and a man of might where the ring closes and the blows are going. Oh, and what becomes of that shoe of a horse and it rusty? The fisherman says they can give it to her father the earl, and he can make a kirk and a mill of it for me. A Scottish expression of dismissal. He can do whatever he wants with it for all I care. The talisman has served its purpose. It is time to move on. Now let's generalize a little from what we've perceived, making connections to other fables, drawing conclusions. They must be tentative, since we may see something very different another, another time we read the fable. But that's okay. We have engaged with the fable as we are now. And that's the point here, isn't it? Don't we have in the poor thing another fable about going out and engaging in life? What gives the fisherman the impetus to move out of his solitary world? It is, we might say, the spirit of his ancestors, a kind of generic inheritance, bringing out the best in him and achieving the best. In the mythic level of fairy tales, marrying the princess, or Earl's daughter in this case, does not mean something as crass as just getting the rich babe. It doesn't imply that only beautiful, rich women are desirable. Turn it around a little and see that the lovely lady represents what is most beautiful, most desirable in life. Ultimately, it means uniting with the best in yourself, the highest kind of self-fulfillment. Stevenson was very interested in the new scientific theories of genetics, and he's brought these ideas into his story personifying those inherited traits as those creepy, buzzing-voiced ghosts of his ancestors speaking to him, giving him a gift which brings out his innate abilities. In several places, Stevenson shows how much attention he paid to his ancestors on both sides, as guides and also as critics of what he was doing with his life. In the kind of absurd world where we can find no certainties, in such an unstable world, why not find some stability in what we've inherited, not just biologically, but culturally? What have we, what have we got to lose? Let the charm work upon us. It was so my fathers did in the ancient ages, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. Has this helped make some sense of this difficult fable for you? It would be good to go through the fable again, but do we have time? Yeah, yes, let's do it. And if you can't afford the time, you can always cut out now. But I hope you won't. thing.
there was a man in the islands who fished for his bare bellyful, and took his life in his hands to go forth upon the sea between four planks. But though he had much ado, he was merry of heart, and the gulls heard him laugh when the spray met him. And though he had little lore, he was sound of spirit, and when the fish came to his hook in the mid-waters, he blessed God without weighing. He was bitter poor in goods, and bitter ugly of countenance, and he had no wife. It fell in the time of the fishing that the man awoke in his house about the midst of the afternoon. The fire burnt in the midst, and the smoke went up and the sun came down by the chimney, and the man was aware of the likeness of one that warmed his hands at the red peats. I greet you, said the man, in the name of God. I greet you, said he that warmed his hands, but not in the name of God, for I am none of his, nor in the name of hell, for I am not of hell, for I am but a bloodless thing, less than wind and lighter than a sound, and the wind goes through me like a net, and I am broken by a sound and shaken by the cold. Be plain with me, said the man, and tell me your name and of your nature. My name, quoth the other, is not yet named, and my nature is not yet sure. For I am part of a man, and I was a part of your fathers, and went out to fish and fight with them in the ancient days. But now is my turn not yet come, and I wait until you have a wife, and then shall I be in your son, and a brave part of him, rejoicing manfully to launch the boat into the surf, skilful to direct the helm, and a man of might where the ring closes and the blows are going. <laughs> this is a marvellous thing to hear, said the man, and if you are indeed to be my son, I, I fear it will go ill with you, for I am bitter poor in goods and bitter ugly in face, and I shall never get me a wife if I live to the age of eagles. All this have I come to remedy, my father, said the poor thing, for we must go this night to the little isle of sheep, where our fathers lie in the dead cairn, and to-morrow to the earl's hall, and there shall you find a wife by my providing. So the man rose and put forth his boat at the time of the sun-setting, and the poor thing sat in the prow, and the spray blew through his bones like snow, and the wind whistled in his teeth, and the boat dipped not with the weight of him. I'm fearful to see you, my son, said the man, for methinks you are no thing of God. Oh, it's only the wind that whistles in my teeth, said the poor thing, and there's no life in me to keep it out. So they came to the little isle of sheep, where the surf burst all about it in the midst of the sea, and it was all green with bracken and all wet with dew, and the moon enlightened it. They ran the boat into a cove and set foot to land, and the man came heavily behind among the rocks in the deepness of the bracken, but the poor thing went before him like a smoke in the light of the moon. So they came to the dead cairn, and they laid their ears to the stones, and the dead complained with insides like a swarm of bees. Time was that marrow was in our bones, and strength in our sinews, and the thoughts of our head were clothed upon with acts and the words of men, 
But now we are broken in sunder, and the bonds of our bones are loosed, and our thoughts lie in the dust. Then said the poor thing, Charge them that they give you the virtue they withheld. And the man said, Bones of my father's greeting, for I am sprung of your loins. And now, behold, I break open the piled stones of your cairn, and I let in the moon between your ribs. Count it well done, for it was to be, and give me what I come seeking in the name of blood and in the name of God. And the spirits of the dead stirred in the cairn like ants, and they spoke. You have broken the roof of our cairn and let in the moon between our ribs, and you have the strength of the still living. But what virtue have we? What power? Or what jewel here in the dust with us that any living man should covet or receive it? For we are less than nothing. But we tell you one thing, speaking with many voices like bees, that the way is plain before all like the grooves of launching. So forth into life and fear not, for so did we all in the ancient ages. And their voices passed away like an eddy in a river. Now, said the poor thing, they have told you a lesson, but make them give you a gift. Stoop your hand among the bones without drawback, and you shall find their treasure. So the man stooped his hand, and the dead laid hold upon it, many and faint like ants, but he shook them off, and behold, what he brought up in his hand was the shoe of a horse, and it was rusty. It is a thing of no price, quoth the man, for it is rusty. We shall see that, said the poor thing, for my thought it is a good thing to do what our fathers did, and to keep what they kept without question. And in my thought, one thing is as good as another in this world, and a shoe of a horse will do. Now they got into their boat with the horseshoe, and when the dawn was come, they were aware of the smoke of the earl's town and the bells of the kirk that beat. So they set foot to shore, and the man went up to the market among the fishers over against the palace and the kirk, and he was bitter poor and bitter ugly and he had never a fish to sell, but only a shoe of a horse in his creel, and it rusty. Now, said the poor thing, do so and so, and ye shall find a wife, and I a mother. It befell that the earl's daughter came forth to go into the kirk upon her prayers, and when she saw the poor man stand in the market with only the shoe of a horse, and it rusty, it came in her mind it should be a thing of price. What is that? quoth she. It is a shoe of a horse, said the man. And, and what is the use of it? quoth the earl's daughter. It is for no use, said the man. I may not believe that, said she. Why else should you carry it? I do so, said he, because it was so my father's did in the ancient ages, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. Now the earl's daughter could not find it in her mind to believe him. Come, quoth she, sell me this, for I'm sure it is a thing of price. Nay, said the man, for the thing is not for sale. What? cried the earl's daughter. Then what make you here in the town's market with the thing in your creel and not beside? 
I sit here, says the man, to get me a wife. There's no sense in any of these answers, thought the Earl's daughter, and I could find it in my heart to weep. By came the Earl upon that, and she called him and told him all, and when he had heard, he was of his daughter's mind that this should be a thing of virtue, and charged the man to set a price upon the thing, or else be hanged upon the gallows, and that was near at hand so that the man could see it. The way of life is straight like the grooves of launching, quoth the man, and if I am to be hanged, let me be hanged. Why, cried the earl, will you set your neck against the shoe of a horse, and it rusty? In my thought, said the man, one thing is as good as another in this world, and the shoe of a horse will do. This can never be, thought the earl, and he stood and looked upon the man and bit his beard. And the man looked up at him and smiled. It was so my fathers did in the ancient ages, quoth he to the earl, and I have neither a better reason nor a worse. There's no sense in any of this, thought the earl, and I must be growing old. So he had his daughter on one side, and says he, Many suitors have you denied, my child, but here is a very strange matter that a man should cling so to a shoe of a horse, and it rusty, and that he should offer it like a thing on sale, and yet not sell it, and that he should sit there seeking a wife. If I come not to the bottom of this thing, I shall have no more pleasure in bread, and I can see no way, but either I should hang or you should marry him. By my troth, but he is bitter ugly, said the earl's daughter. How if the gallows be so near at hand? It was not so, said the earl, that my fathers did in the ancient ages. I'm like the man, and can give you neither a better reason nor a worse. But do you, prithee, speak with him again? So the earl's daughter spoke to the man. If you were not so bitter ugly, quoth she, my father the earl would have us marry. Bitter ugly am I, said the man, and you as fair as may. Bitter ugly I am, and what of that? It was so my father's. Oh, in the name of God, said the earl's daughter, let your father's be. If I had done that, said the man, you had never been chaffering with me here in the market, nor your father the earl watching with the end of his eye. But come, quoth the earl's daughter, this is a very strange thing that you would have me wed for a shoe of a horse, and it rusty. In my thought, quoth the man, one thing is as good. Oh, spare me that, said the earl's daughter, and tell me why I should marry. Listen and look, said the man. Now the wind blew through the poor thing like an infant crying, so that her heart was melted and her eyes were unsealed, and she was aware of the thing as it were a babe unmothered, and she took it to her arms, and it melted in her arms like the air. Come, said the man, behold a vision of our children, the busy hearth and the white heads, and let that suffice, for it is all God offers. I have no delight in it, said she, but with that she sighed. The ways of life are straight like the grooves of launching, said the man, and he took her by the hand. And, and what shall we do with the horseshoe, quoth she? I will give it to your father, said the man, and he can make a kirk and a mill of it for me. It came to pass in time that the poor thing was born, but memory of these matters slept within him, 
and he knew not that which he had done. But he was a part of the eldest son, rejoicing manfully to launch the boat into the surf, skilful to direct the helm, and a man of might where the ring closes and the blows are going. it for now. You can, by the way, send me a response at lamplight at cambridge105.co.uk. And join us again next time when I'm going to try to bring alive probably the most unusual of all the fables, a dialogue between two fictional characters from a book we all know. See you then. <laughs>